2: Hales, host of the Finding Holy podcast and author of the book Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. And I wrote my book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, because I wanted to connect the dots between the things that matter our life, our faith, our parenting, our work, right? And what does that look like on a day to day basis? And so the podcast does the same thing. We're connecting the dots between the things that really matter and our everyday holy life. And this conversation today with Seth Haynes is sure to help usher us into conversations about what we do with our time, um, how we're addicted to social media, how we can use alcohol or food or shopping or rage on Facebook to give us meaning in our lives. And what do we do when we strip it all away? This conversation is a gentle entree into questions of the soul, and I hope that you'll join me for it so here's a little bit about Seth he describes himself as a writer, photographer and quasi-native Arkansan who loves the Ozarks, his wife and four boys and a good collection of poems he's the author of the award winning book Coming Clean, A Story of Faith and you can join his Patreon community for exclusive blurbs of his work insider short stories, private poetry and more and that will be all in the show notes if you just scroll right on down Be sure to stick around, because at the end, I'm going to give you just one small step so that you can take all of the wisdom that Seth offers us in this conversation and bring it into your everyday holy life. Here's my conversation with Seth. All right, I am so excited to welcome my friend, Seth Haynes, to the podcast. Welcome, Seth.
1: Yo, how's it going?
2: Yay, look at you. You're like chipper. I love I'm it.
1: Excited. Yeah. Had Seventeen cups of coffee this morning.
2: We're ready to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Seth wrote a book um, a few years ago called "Coming Clean," which was this journey of the soul. So, Seth, would you give our listeners, maybe if they haven't picked it up, they should, but just you know, a two-second little recap about that journey for you.
1: Yeah, it'll probably take more than two seconds, but I can do it under probably thirty seconds. Oh, that's um, good. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, so my uh, youngest son uh, was extremely ill, and in the season of his illness, uh, I started drinking really hard. I had probably been a problematic drinker for a few years before, but in that season, I sort of gave gave all, all in. I went all in, so yeah. to speak. Um, and Coming Clean is the story of my journey out of that season of drinking and into a season of sobriety. Um, and really, it's a story more about uh, the pains and doubts of life, mm-hmm. uh, more about the struggles um, with family and son, and a whole lot less about alcohol. But it it really does sort of weave all those things in together.
2: Mm-hmm. And I got to review the book in Books and Culture back when Books and Culture was a thing. So it was super fun. We connected early on um, getting to read his work. But I think, yeah, the question I have is, you know, I live in the suburbs. You're in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. But I think the human condition is so similar as far as that we, we're we afraid of pain, we're afraid of suffering, and we don't know how to deal with it. So we seek something usually to numb it. What are some of the culprits that you see where you live or you know, as you're looking around broader culture and you see things pop up on Facebook about ways that we choose to numb?
1: Yeah. It's interesting that you said pop up on Facebook because that would be my primary, uh, the primary addiction that I would note these days is is Facebook, Twitter, social media. I mean, the truth is, is that we all use uh, some sort of mechanism to escape or to numb uh, pain. You know, if you don't feel like you have enough social connection in your life, Mm. or if you feel lonely, what do you do? A lot of people will open up. Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and scroll the feed and try to connect with people. Um, And that's not innately a bad thing. You know, me, for instance, um, at the end of the day, I really enjoyed a glass of whiskey in the beginning. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily a bad thing, right? But it's when at the end of any stressful day, any painful day, the only way to calm my nerves was to turn to whiskey. Right.
0: Um,
1: or the moment when there is silence and the only option that you have to do instead of turn to prayers, to turn to Facebook or Twitter.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, so yeah, so I think that the, the culprits that I see are things like alcohol abuse, particularly in a, a culture of Christian liberty, like mm-hmm. I see a lot alcohol abuse there um a lot of facebook and twitter instagram addiction uh people who literally like can't go a day without um it 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 needles in their brain you know it's a Mm -hmm. needling word like check instagram check instagram check instagram you can't Mm -hmm. get rid of it that's addiction Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um i do see a lot of pill abuse um even among you know uh christian faithful i mean they come to me all the time and say hey look i've got this xanax deal that I can't seem to break. Um, when you're the addiction guy, people like confess these things. So yeah,
2: I was wondering how much are you, have you become kind of the counselor for, for your readers? Yeah, it happens. De facto spiritual director.
1: Yeah, it happens a lot. It happens a lot. And, and, um, and it's everything again, it's everything from alcohol, uh, pills, porn, social media. Um, I see a lot of shopping addiction, uh, a lot of food addiction. Um, but all these things sort of, they're really ways to numb and to cope with mm-hmm. other pain points of life.
2: And what do you think the reason is that we don't have, you know, a more robust way in our faith to deal with pain, you know, either personally pain, or corporately?
1: Yeah, I think pain hurts. Yeah. I think pain hurts. And and um, unfortunately, uh, in a lot of uh, American Christianity um, in a lot of Western Christianity is probably a better way to put it, particularly evangelical Christianity. A lot of times we skip uh, theologies of suffering. We mm. skip theologies of pain. Uh, we go straight to the resurrection. And a lot of traditions uh, in Western Christianity simply won't celebrate Lent. There's not a season of pain to get to the resurrection. Um, And so if you're never contemplating pain, if you're never contemplating death, if you're never contemplating the things that historically the Christian church has contemplated that lead up to resurrection and redemption and salvation— Um, then when those seasons come, you don't really have a framework to deal with it. And that Mm -hmm. doesn't matter if you're, you know, living in in Arkansas or Chicago, you know, you don't have a framework for dealing with pain and suffering when pain and suffering comes. uh, You know, there's nothing to do but to try to numb it.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How have you kind of restructured, you know, in kind of tactile, temporal ways, you know, in actual time and space? some of these sorts of fr- framework things for yourself, you know, rebuilding, what does, what does that look like for you and your story?
1: Yeah. So for me, a lot of it had to do, even in the early days, it had to to do with silence and solitude, the practices of silence and solitude.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So for me, after a work day, it was kind of when uh, uh, my uh, emotions were pretty heightened, my sensitivities were heightened. And uh, for a season, that's okay. But then when Titus uh, fell really sick, you know, we had two, two, three, maybe even four years there that were really touch and go with his illness. And so I would come home from a hard day at work, and instead of walking into sort of a restful atmosphere with my family, I would then walk into more trauma. Right. Um, and so stress just gave way to stress. Well, in the season where I quit drinking, uh, what I found is that the only reason, the only way to really deal with that stress was to find solitude to find silence and invite God into that stress, invite God into that pain. Mm -hmm. So for me, it looked like coming home, having dinner with the family, you know, doing the thing. Um, And then when the kids went to bed, I would, you know, get 30 minutes by myself and Amber would give it to me, you know, and and, um, she would go do her thing and I would do my thing. And for 30 minutes, I would sit in silence and solitude and just ask God to come and be with me in the middle of, of the stress. Mm. So that was the earliest representation, I think, of, of, of inviting God into uh, pain and contemplating pain, contemplating death, contemplating mm-hmm. the hard things. Um, and as I've uh, grown in those practices, now I have, you know, particular rituals. I have particular habits. Every mm-hmm. morning I wake up and I have the same habit of silence and solitude for nearly an hour. Uh, a couple times a week, I try to go, we have a a local uh, church that has an adoration chapel where you can just sit in quiet and Mm -hmm. spend time in quiet adoration of, uh, the the body and blood of Jesus, right? So the the Eucharist. So Mm -hmm. I sit and I contemplate pain and suffering and death that leads to redemption. Um, and so these practices of silence and solitude, um, they've, they've given a rise to ways and structures to recognize and deal with pain, mm-hmm. but they've also shown me, uh, the great joy of connection with, with God in that. And, and so now my silence and solitude isn't always about pain and death and suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, now
2: can be <laughs> about joy. And... Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: I think that's that's a really practical way to start. What does community look like that for you, whether, you know, with your wife, Amber, as a writer and she's in seminary, uh, you know, what does community look like in your marriage too? to give each other that space to grow and change as well as in your faith community where you are?
1: Yeah, I think that kind of community is really born out of trust. You really have to trust each other. Um, and you really have to give each other what, uh, what you need. I could be a hermit. Like if I were allowed to be, yeah. um, I could probably lock myself in a cell and and be fine to be alone. Amber's less like that. You know, she needs uh, a little bit more connection, a little bit more, <laughs> yeah. um, recognizing just the ways we've, we've been made. We try to carve out space and time. In our marriage, to say like these are your alone times and these are our together times, and and those times are sort of inviolable. I mean, they're they're ours, mm-hmm. um, and then there, we flex those as we need. But um, you know, the mornings are kind of my time, but in her time also. I mean, she has right. her time, um, and the evenings are kind of our time together. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and um, I think that's that. You know, that's how you have to do it. And the same in community, the broader community, the broader church community. I mean, mm-hmm. we we don't let. Uh, church activity encroach on things that are our personal solitude and silence times or our family time Um, and and likewise we don't use personal solitude and silence as a as a way to exempt ourselves from the community right right over here being holy you guys right you know we don't we don't do that either
2: right right yeah I think that, yeah, I think that's a good point, right? Because it can be easily, we can easily kind of co-opt the life of the community for like our sense of personal holiness. um,
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And not really allow the community to stretch us, especially in kind of, you know, this kind of personal salvation, evangelical kind of cultural milieu that we, you know, a lot of us have come from. Um, The idea of the individual, we can still kind of spiritualize it rather than yeah, And and that was bigger.
1: Yeah, and that was never really the intent of the early church. It was never the intent that we would be on this sort of individual quest toward salvation. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, what they called that was Gnosticism in the early church. (laughs) Um, And and so um, our practices were very embodied.
0: They Mm -hmm. were personally
1: embodied, personally Mm -hmm. contemplative, but they were also embodied as the community. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when you read the early chapters of Acts and you see how – um, personal transformation gave way to communal transformation. Um, right. and th- these are the things that actually help keep us sober. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, this is, this is the beauty of Ephesians five. Don't be, don't be always in isolation. Mm-hmm. Don't be always by yourself contemplating. Don't, of course he says, don't be filled with wine. You know, don't Great. be over here by yourself drunk, Dracking, but instead yeah. be with the community singing to each other with songs and spiritual songs. And this is his point is don't live lives of isolation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there may be times when isolation and contemplation are, are necessary. There are times when those are necessary, but also the community is necessary. Be part of the community.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. we. Um, my husband and I just recently went to just this ministry retreat, day-long retreat, and um, Donald Guthrie, who wrote several books on ministry, but he was talking about, you know, that isolation always leads to death um, mm-hmm. and that. If you want to be flourishing, whether that's a church or community, you always need to be connected. And it doesn't mean that you need to be hyper-connected, but if you isolate, it always leads to death.
1: Yeah, and I think on the flip side of that, we 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 can have a theology that says too that it's all about the gathering, it's all about the right. community. And I see right. that a lot too. Is it's you know we're gonna we're gonna live this out as a community, we're gonna walk in the community, um, and we spin up into so much activity and right. work. Uh, that we forget the contemplative nature of the right. faithful. So right. it is really this both and that we it need to It is. And
2: learn. Yeah, and I think you know that the 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 tendency to isolate is um isn't contemplative because contemplative spirituality always brings us back into community, the life of God and the life yeah. of of our communities. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Where might someone just begin to start, um, you know, whether they realize, hey, I'm always taking, you know, taking out my phone or, you know, I, you know, can't get through the evening without binge watching Netflix. Um, You know, I have too many drinks at a party or, you know, whatever it is that we, that we're using to kind of numb our pain. Where might we begin to start to welcome God into that, the pain or the mess um, or just the confusion about maybe hey, you know, I'm middle-aged and life doesn't look like I thought. What do I do with that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, I think the first thing is just the recognition of that pain. I mean, I think the, the first thing, um, well, so, so many of us just blithely go about our lives failing to consider the pain points. We don't stop long enough. Um, we just move from thing to thing and silence brings pain and so we avoid it uh, solitude brings uh, pain, stillness brings pain. So we avoid it, mm-hmm. uh, spin into binge watching. We spin inj- into binge drinking. We spin into binge, you know, fill in the blank. Right. So I think the first place a person, um, can start is, is just stop, pause, give themselves 10 minutes a day mm-hmm. and, and say, uh, am I in a season of stress? And if the answer to that is yes, then begin to list, like, what are the things that stress me out? We mm-hmm. make a list. Yeah. What are the stressors in my life? Um, and if it's an everyday stressor, like, oh, dang it, I keep forgetting to like pick up the dry cleaning. Like, that's one thing. But if it's, you know, I've been in a two-year season of work that's unsatisfying, Right. that's like an actual deep existential pain point. Mm-hmm. Or if it. Uh, the health of my kids, or the spirituality of my kids, or the status of my church, um, those are actually deep existential pain points. And I, I think the place to start is really to stop mm-hmm. and to say, what, what, what is this that I'm sensing?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, another thing that I tell people a lot is look at the things that you cannot not do, right? Mm-hmm. So if you cannot not binge watch Netflix, or even if you cannot not watch two episodes of netflix a night Mm -hmm. um, then ask yourself what are you avoiding right if you uh, can't stop having the extra drink or if you can't take a night off from drinking then the question is why like Mm -hmm. what what am i avoiding Mm -hmm. if i didn't drink what would happen what would i Mm -hmm. feel what would i sense and so i think um there are two ways you know you can really go about it you can either one, just stop everything, give yourself 10 minutes of solitude and start making lists. Or you can say, what are the things that I'm, I'm just like compulsively doing? And, and what do they do for me? Mm-hmm. Get curious about what they do for you. Mm-hmm. Um, give yourself a lot of latitude and compassion as you explore that.
2: Mm, that's great. Just easy, easy way to start, make a list. How have yeah. you welcomed your children into some of these practices as a parent?
1: Uh, well, we, I mean, the truth is we really haven't. I mean, a lot of this stuff right now is, um, I mean, we're still learning, we're still walking it out. We're still trying to stay a a step ahead. Um, we have conversations around things like video games and text messaging, um, because those are real things. We talk about phone addiction Mm -hmm. a lot, but as far as um, the contemplation of of what's underneath that, um, those are kind of bigger conversations, you know, conversations that probably need to happen when their worldview is a little bit more
0: solidified.
1: (laughs) Uh, So right now what we're trying to do is just model lives of temperance. And I think that's the best thing uh, that we can do for parents is model lives of temperance, model Mm -hmm. lives that don't, you know, usher the kids up to bed as quickly as we can, so that we can turn on the television. Right. Or that don't say, "Hey, you know, don't talk to me for 30 minutes. I gotta, you know, sit down with the newspaper and drink my martini, like my grandfather used to." Right. do, You know,
2: things oh, like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's
1: right. Yeah. Okay. So I think that the the way to really invite our children into it is is really to model the idea of temperance, um, which is really a holy virtue.
0: Mm.
2: So what do you make, um, you know, our current culture where people are shouting things across the aisles, you know, on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, um, that we don't abide, you know, tension or grayness kind of in our faith or politics. How do we work at some of these virtues you're talking about? You know, temperance, sobriety, things that are softer and quieter and a lot more complex. Are you right or wrong? Or how do you vote on this issue? Or the the idea that I'm right and everyone else is wrong. What do we do with that? Because I think... What you're saying has a lot to speak to our current moment.
1: Yeah, you're actually, you're raising a really fascinating question that's very connected. It's connected about seven layers back to the issue of sobriety. So I'll try to go back and work my way forward. Perfect. So when we talk about polarization, when we talk about messaging, psychology tells us, and we know for a fact that fear motivates. Fear and anger motivates action. It mm-hmm. drives us to do things. So if I can spool you up into enough fear and you're on my side, then you'll fight with me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If I can spool you up into enough fear and you're on the other side, then you'll fight against me. Mm-hmm. And if fight for me, you're on my team, I build a following. If you yeah. fight against me, then I have someone to spar against and make this grand show and these things. Uh, and this is this is not just Seth talking like I was trained as a lawyer. This is the reptilian part of the brain. This is what mm-hmm. we talk about practice of law. It's how we use rhetoric to get juries on our side and judges on our side. I mean, these yeah. are the things that we're um, skilled at doing that, and that psychologists know and have known for a long time. Well, unfortunately, uh, what's happened in our modern culture, particularly on things like Twitter and on Facebook, and now in the media, is we see uh, that there is this constant use of fear and anger in order to drive action. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the problem with that our fear and anger, uh, the fear and anger parts of our brain are now always turned on, we okay. are always in fight or flight mode. Mm-hmm. And that is pain. Fight Mm -hmm. or flight leads to pain. The the Mm -hmm. notion that I'm always in some fight or flight mode, that anxiety, that constant low-grade anxiety is a form of pain. And that absolutely drives addiction. Mm -hmm. So if I fought all day long in the courtroom, and then on every break I jumped on Twitter... And I fought all day long. And then I walk uh, into my house, and it's six o'clock at night, and everybody has to do homework, and we got to wrangle kids to get them to bed. And that's like its own sort of tension and fighting. Um, Then by eight o'clock, what is there left except for all this pent up frustration and anger and energy? Mm And how do we kill that? We kill that with substances. We numb ourselves by any of these things that we've, you know, been talking about: pills, porn, booze, shopping, whatever. Right? We mm-hmm. numb. We check out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and and that has very, uh, it's very physiological. You know, I drink right. enough, and it literally numbs the anxiety. It numbs those feelings. I shop enough, and I check out. You know, Amazon, mm-hmm. click, 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 click. I check out. Right. Yeah. Um, and so. I think one of the things that we have to be aware of, particularly in this climate, is how much uh, the divisiveness fuels addiction. Mm. Um, it can fuel addiction to the medium, which we certainly see right. on social media, but it can also fuel these sort of secondary addictions, uh, the, the need to like numb the pain, numb the anger, numb the rage, uh, numb the frustration. Um, so I think one of the things that is, is super important has been super important in my own life is to recognize that, to see that, and then to limit, uh, the spaces that I can. So I can't always limit the fighting that happens at work. Like that's just part of work. Right. Right. Um, but Twitter and Facebook, I mean, those are tangential to my life. Right. So I can absolutely limit, uh, how much I let them in my life. I can take them off my phone. You know, I can I can only check in certain times a day. When I check in and I see something that schools me up into anger and fear, I can scroll past it
0: mm-hmm. and look
1: for something that's beautiful or fun or funny or joyful mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever the thing is. Um, and so I think bringing a mindfulness to the ways um, that, that society wants to shape us in anger mm-hmm. and anxiety and fear, mm-hmm. bringing a mindfulness to that so that we avoid it uh, when we can. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's uh, really the way we need to be modeling, not just for our kids, but for our kids, our wives, our friends, our spouses, our communities, um, and then walking in a way uh, that shows restraint and temperance in those avoidable mm. mediums. And I have not always been good at that. Uh, you can go back through my Twitter feed and you'll see it. <laughs> uh, But I've tried to be more mindful of it, particularly mm-hmm. in the last six months.
2: Mm. What's your hope for you know those of us who... You know- who can see? Look, we're addicted to rage. We're addicted, you know. Our brains are firing on outrage all the time. Um, what does, it, you know, what does it look to seek to live a quiet life? What's your hope for how things might change?
1: So there's a a monk. He's not really a monk. He's more like a Franciscan brother. His name's John Michael Talbot. He lives about an hour north of here. And uh, you should look up his videos. He's a funny old man. Look up the ones where he's like playing guitar and leading people in worship because. Okay. He's been doing this like 20 some odd years and he's been doing it with a community, um, again, up North of us, it's mm-hmm. a, prayer, a community of prayer, um, mm-hmm. a community of brothers and sisters of prayer. And, um, when he plays guitar and leads music for these congregations, he'll sing these very deep and meaningful songs and then he'll just start cracking jokes between songs and yep. making fun of himself. And, and it's just this very joyful, fun way that seems so detached from the stuff of modern society, mm, mm. Uh, from the outrage and the anger. And it flows from a life of deep contemplation,
0: mm-hmm. deep
1: prayer, uh, deep uh, removal from these mechanisms that fire up so much anger and rage. And, and not that he doesn't know what's going on in the world, he does.
0: Right.
1: But he's made an intentional um, move to uh, stay away uh, from that stuff and to, and to delve into prayer. So I, I think when I, when you ask what's your hope, my hope is that we develop more communities of prayer that cultivate more people like that, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not going to uh, don a habit and go, you know, live on right. some 70 acre farm with right. 20 people or whatever. Um, but how in our everyday communities can we cultivate lives that say we're devoted to personal prayer practices. We're devoted to adoration, quiet adoration and contemplation. We're devoted to gathering with our local group of believers and like making that our core community instead right. of tertiary spaces, right. like mm-hmm. spaces. And then when we go into the world, carry the beauty, carry the joy, carry mm-hmm. uh, that deep sort of contemplative notion, but in a way that Uh, that doesn't necessarily draw attention to ourselves as much as it draws attention to the negativity uh, of the world around us. In in other words, we live lives that are so different that when people see those things um, and then when they get on uh, what I'll call Christian uh, Twitter and they see all the outrage, um, they would say, Oh, there's something qualitatively different Mm -hmm. with Ashley or Seth or Scott or whomever. Mm -hmm. There's something qualitatively different about them. Mm -hmm. That's my hope, um, really, for people of faith engaged in in this culture. And that's an act of sobriety.
2: I love it. So good. Thank you. That's given us just a lot of hope. I think there's both the the pain and the suffering and not numbing and what are the practices, but I think there's also then, what does it look like to have hope amidst, yeah, man. amidst the pain? It's the beauty and the brokenness all together. So That's tell hilarious. us as we close, what is your laundry practice, Seth? Um, so we were
1: talking about this a little bit before, yeah. and I was a little bit embarrassed to say I don't necessarily have a laundry practice. Um, so... Um, I do take all of my button downs and I put them to the side. Well done. And then I put all my other dirties where Amber, where all the other dirties are that Amber will take. And then she will wash those clothes and mostly dry them. Yep. Uh, and then I will do my own button downs and gentle cycle type stuff, hang them up and do all that. Um, and then occasionally, um, like more than occasionally, I'm kind of the, sor- the sock sorter. Ooh. That's what I do nice. I'm a stock sorting guy.
2: I love it. Do you have a spot for all of the lonelies? You know, the only. She does. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so she takes all those out and puts them in this little basket. And then about once a week I go through them and, and match up all the, the lonelies. And also she doesn't, she folds a lot of, she, all her clothes and all the towels, but the boys do their own folding and I
2: do my own folding. Do you like do the Marie Kondo folding, the fancy folding? Because I know no, you guys are doing your whole minimalism thing. So I didn't I know did. if you were Marie Kondoing it. I
1: don't know how Marie Kondo folds, but I get in super big trouble when I do the towels.
2: For do, folding them incorrectly.
1: Yes. Where candles
2: are challenging. <laughs> ridiculous. How? How is that a thing? I don't know. I don't know. Good thing. See, I don't do, I don't really do the laundry. I do my kids' laundry. Bryce does our laundry. 'cause he's particular about things like that. And I'm not. Yeah. I just say, kids, it's in your stuff. Put it away. You're good. That's, that's I don't care. That,
1: that's just less normal, stuff on
2: really the floor.
1: <laughs> that's, that's right. That's normally how we roll, except for the towels. She likes to do the towels because I do them wrong.
2: You know, that's okay. It's a partnership, right? That's good.
1: I I cook I my I do the cooking. Ooh, that's, that's good. That's my thing.
2: Yeah. We all have to have our, our bringing order out of chaos, little. That's exactly right. So you keep your cooking. Great. Well, it's been such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for your good thoughts on culture and pain and sobriety. I can't wait to see what happens next. All
1: right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Yeah.
2: I hope you are loving this conversation and you are loving the Finding Holy podcast And friends, I would be so honored if you would just take a second and subscribe, if you haven't already, to the Finding Holy Podcast and maybe share with a friend. What does it look like for them to enter into their pain or, you know, to start playing the guitar like that Franciscan brother to live a life of joy? And I'm hopeful that these conversations here at the Finding Holy Podcast will spur you on towards greater intimacy with God and with your community. So here's your one small step and I'm taking it directly from Seth and it's this. It's the spiritual habit of making a list. Simply take just a few minutes and write down what are the stressors in my life? Because stress is a form of pain, right? And as we are in pain, we often seek to numb that pain. And that's kind of where addiction starts. So begin with a list. What are the things that are causing anxiety or fear or pain or worry in your life? Write those down. And of course, offer them as a prayer to God. Practice being gentle with yourself. But list those things that you cannot not do. And maybe that's something like, you always steal the Hershey bar out of the cabinet every night. You have to have something sweet to begin to kind of come on down from the stress of your day. Ask yourself the question, what are you avoiding? Seth asks us to get curious about the things that we run to for comfort. So I hope that making a list, praying through it, and then asking yourself, what am I avoiding? is just one small step that you can take into your holy ordinary life. So make sure that you connect with Seth on social media. You can find out all about him and his Patreon community at sethhaynes.com. And you guys, he has another book. It's coming out this January, The Book of Waking Up. It's a beautiful book. I've had a sneak peek of it. And don't worry, all that information is in the show notes. So friends, whether you find yourself suddenly aware of how you use small things even to numb or distract yourself from pain or if you find yourself walking into greater intimacy and flourishing with God right now, know that there's grace and that we can be gentle with ourselves because God is gentle with us, because he's given us all things, including Jesus Christ and his perfection for us. And so I hope you'll be brave enough to take one small step so that you can connect those dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And maybe you'll just be able to begin a practice of joy of play of having fun because all of these big things matter but so does the laundry